Welcome to Brains Matter, the podcast on science, curiosities, and general knowledge. I'm your host, just an ordinary guy. I've got Dr. Diani Lewis here from the University of Melbourne once again on the show, so welcome back, Diani. Good to be here. What we wanted to talk about today was your move from a research career into a science communication career. So, first of all, could you remind the listeners what you started doing and then what um, influenced you to change that career path? Yeah, sure. So, um, so I started off in working in plant genetics. I did a PhD and then during my first postdoc, I, I guess I started uh, having some doubts about whether I really, whether I could really cut it in research, I guess. Um, my PhD had been quite descriptive and as the saying goes, publish or perish, um, I was fast on my way to, to perishing, unfortunately. And I think um, it took me a very long time to, I guess, in a way, come to terms with the idea of potentially leaving science. and. For me, it was always, um, yeah, a very emotionally <laughs> charged kind of problem that I had, and I, I guess I started thinking about what alternative career paths I might take, and I'd sort of thought about, you know, oh, maybe you know, getting into scientific editing, uh, like at a, a journal, that would be pretty cool. And I, uh, but I also thought about writing, and so I, I decided to do a part-time graduate diploma in journalism at the same time as doing my, my postdoctoral study and I really enjoyed it and and I guess I, I sort of became reasonably convinced that I was going in the right direction. It's, it's taken a long while and I think really I'm only starting now, this is already a few years down the track, to, to fully being able to go, okay, I'm going to you know, give it my all and put myself out there. And I think, I think that's the scary thing with becoming a journalist is, you know, having your having your work widely read. I mean, I guess some people take to it like a duck out of water, but for me, um, it, it wasn't a natural thing. And I guess that's why I initially went for the the graduate diploma in journalism because it was like, oh well, you know, I guess I can kind of write, but I'd feel better if I had the degree to to prove it. And and I I think I also felt that that would give me some sort of confidence. But I think in the end, you need to find that that confidence to just get out there and start and start doing it in your own in your own self. And um, I think the other thing with moving into, you know, I I guess science communication is this you know, broad term that's often used and I, I've got to say I don't, I'm not a huge fan of it I and I think now I prefer to say science journalist because I think as a profession journalism is, you know, the idea that something is well researched and ethically researched and, and that sort of thing is, um, I guess I prefer to think that, you know, that's the angle that I'm coming at rather than just being a hobbyist which is not to say that that's, that's a bad thing. I mean, the more people who are getting out there and talking about science, the better. But um... You know, normally when people say, I've done you know, postgraduate research in science, you tend to go in you know, one of many directions. You can continue your research career, you can work in 
industry using your science degree or the other alternative is become a science teacher or, or, or something like that. Whereas, you know, 15 years ago, science journalism wouldn't have been on anyone's radar, really. Um, was it something you, you wanted to do or was it something that came out of doing the study? No, absolutely, it was something that I wanted to do. And I guess I read a number of, you know, great science, uh, science books and um, I, I think I always sort of thought, you know, that would be fantastic to write about and I know that a lot of people get into science journalism and science writing for thoroughly altruistic purposes because they want to you know communicate ideas to to an audience and and I have to say that I, I probably came into science journalism uh, a little bit more selfishly because <laughs> I I liked learning stuff and I think one of the the great things when I had sort of progressed a little way into science journalism was discovering that um, getting out of research wasn't just about not having a strong enough CV, but it was also, it's like, oh, right, yeah, maybe I wasn't actually that suited to sitting around and waiting for plants to grow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, I think I really enjoy the variety that comes with science journalism. I mean, it's possibly the... Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a fantastic job in terms of being able to talk with people who are really passionate about their work. It was something that I didn't have personally as a research scientist. For me, research was quite stressful, and I think I always tried to cram research the same way that I would cram an exam. And so I'd get into the lab and plant out hundreds of plants all at once and then I'd be just madly trying to collect all the specimens that I needed to. Like you can't cram that kind of work, you've just got to, you know, slowly build up the, the evidence and, uh, and no matter how much evidence you get, like most of science, there's, there's no final point, you know, there's, it continues, there's always more questions and that's the beauty of science. But for me, for me, that didn't really work. And so as soon as I was, uh, well, one of the first, I guess, journalism type jobs that I got was working on the University of Melbourne's podcast. And it was such a thrill to, you know, have that, you know, get an episode together. I would do all the background research and interview the um, the guests. And, and then I'd write up a, I guess, a synopsis for the main host. And sit there as the episode was going, you know, maybe um, add a few questions or, you know, be involved in shaping the episode and and then it was done. Mm. It was final. You had learnt a, a hell of a lot in in a short period of time and then you were on some, on to something completely new. And I think for someone who gets quite bored with things, I mean, a, a lot of science is felt to me certainly like glorified data collection. And you know, if I've done a new, learnt a new technique in microscopy or whatever, you just go, okay, I've got it. I, I, I've got it now. I don't really need to section fifty plants. I'm, I, I, you know, the interest is lost at the point where you go, oh yeah, I got it. I get the idea. So I think um, journalism, journalism ended up being. A lot more suited to my personality I think and um, at that point I stopped 
worrying about the fact that you know I hadn't followed the research path because I think stepping off that ladder when it's such a defined hierarchy mm. in research science it's hard to step off the ladder but but I'm yeah more than happy that I've done that. <laughs> Do you get a kick out of knowing that there are people reading what you've written and listening to what you've recorded? Yeah yeah it, it is um it is gratifying it's sort of I guess at the moment I, I I mostly think that my my work falls into a very large <laughs> very large um, pit and I'm not sure how many people actually read read what I write or listen to the podcast and so the idea of an audience is a bit of a an intangible at the moment mm -hmm. and I hope I would want to hope that uh, I get to a point where I know people are <laughs> are reading what I'm writing and who are hopefully enjoying what I writing what I'm writing. But I think you know I'm I'm very much in the um, you know skill skill building. I mean I, I guess I don't think that you ever stop building your skills, but uh, I I think I'm still very aware of how far I need to go to develop. You know there are some. And this is the, it's one of the wonderful things about science at the moment is that if you go on to the internet, there's, there are so many really good quality uh, science writers out there. And, um, you know, some of the magazines in, well, especially based in America, like National Geographic or Discover Magazine or Wired Magazine, all have really strong stables of bloggers who... Uh, you know, blog regularly, and the quality is just so far outstripping anything that you would see in um, in local media. Unfortunately, uh, this is one of the difficulties I I think that, or certainly one of the things that scared the hell out of me getting into science journalism was that you know, with all of this free content, you just wonder how on earth you can actually make a living out of um, out of writing about science because why would why would anyone pay when they can, you know, get all of this content for free? And um, I, I still have a part-time research career, so I guess in a way I do have the luxury of being able to look, try to launch my science journalism by taking on work that isn't paid or doesn't pay much. So there seems to be a bit of a resurgence of science writing, podcasts, blogs... And, and shows to some extent out there. If you go back 20 or 30 years, Australian television and American television as well, and probably wherever else listeners are listening from, had a plethora of science shows. So in Australia, for example, the classic was the Curiosity Show. Mm -hmm. And I remember learning how to write upside down from Dean, who's one of the hosts, <laughs> always writing upside down and showing the mm -hmm. camera. And um, even general um, children's shows like uh, Simon Townsend's Wonderworld would talk about science stories mm. and things like that. And then for a whole you know, couple of decades, that seemed to have just totally disappeared. And do you think that's impacted the way society's evolved and the number of students interested in science has dropped and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, from my perspective, I see a lot of science communication directed at kids. And I know that there's the, the reason for this is very much about, you know, getting kids in early and then they'll, you know, magically maintain this interest throughout their life and decide to have a career in science even though it's completely unpaid. And I think that's a little bit insulting to kids. I mean, 
you know, kids going into university aren't just going, oh, well, I saw a leaf get plonked into liquid nitrogen when I was 10 and now I'm sold for life. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's um, a great pity for, for adults who, uh, you know, if you go to the local science museum, it, I mean, they might have their big kids night out or whatever they call it, but it's still a children's museum. Mm. And science is so much more than bells and whistles for 12-year-olds, I think. And, you know, I guess that's one of the things about, um, you know, when I'm writing, I, I guess I ultimately don't always want to be, you know, stripping back things to the very basics to be understood by someone who's got no knowledge of science because I think there are so many people who do have a, a base level of science and they want to supplement that and they don't want to be patronised when they do when mm. when <laughs> when they read something and um, yeah I think that's really the big gap in in science communication is not necessarily our school kids being entertained and and educated enough in science. I think it's actually translating it into a more general interest that can be maintained throughout life. So late last year, uh, one of the episodes on the Melbourne Uni podcast up close that, that I did was uh, with the managing director of Science Gallery, which is a gallery, uh, as its name mm. <laughs> suggests, uh, all around science, but bringing science and art and design together. Um, science Gallery is in, attached to Trinity College in Dublin. Mm. And so I spoke to uh, Michael John Gorman the managing director and it didn't actually make it into the um, episode but we were talking afterwards about about the whole idea of you know pandering to young kids I mean the science gallery for them is it is directed at sort of 15 to 25 year olds because that's I guess drawing in people for the university um, mm -hmm. but he he made a I think a really great comment which was that if we wanted to design science and science communication so that we knew teenagers were going to be turned off by it, then we would do exactly what we are doing, which is to make it very juvenile and something that you inevitably grow out of. Mm -hmm. And I think that's exactly what is happening with a lot of things. You know, at some point, kids are going, I'm too cool for this kitchen science, I'm too cool for this whatever else. It is. I'm, I'm, I'm grown up and now and I'm, <clears throat> I'm listening to bands and going, you know, eventually when I get older I'll go to an art gallery, you know, like it's, mm -hmm. it, I, I think um, you have to be really careful of um, creating or, or, yeah, creating science in such a way that it only appeals to a particular age group because although getting kids interested in science is important, I don't think that's a very high bar to... <laughs> to set for for creating a science literate community. So how do we then section to the different categories of the community the right level of science? Well, I think it's all about 
you know, providing science in various formats. I think that there absolutely should be a science section in every paper. And I, you know, the New York Times... Listening to that news. <laughs> the New York Times has a fabulous science section. And I fail to believe that New Yorkans are so much more intelligent than Melburnians. Mm -hmm. And I fail to believe that Melburnians are so much less interested in science than what people reading the New York Times are. And I, I think it's, um, yeah, I, I think it's devastating to think that the only thing we're interested about in in science isn't actually called science in a in a newspaper it's called technology or health and you know finding out what google is saying about the latest iphone or even is health, not... talk about the latest fad diets as opposed to real health issues yeah that's right it's it's really um i don't know it's really disappointing and even though I think there are a lot of people who, you know, do are interested in finding out about the scientist who, who researches some, I don't know, strange bird species that does some weird migratory thing. I mean, sure, it's a sense of, you know, that sense of wonder at, at the various things in the world. It might seem like a childish thing, but if you, if it's well written and intelligently written and not um, yeah, patronising the reader, then I think, I, I don't understand why that wouldn't have an audience. <laughs> and you were talking about the New York Times and their science section. Um, we have newspapers in Australia which specifically pander to political interests and mm. try and poo-poo science and scientists. So how do you think we can use science journalism, science communication or to change that view because it seems to be you know pushed by in the ownership of those particular media outlets mm. but fundamentally it's basically treating the readers as dumb saying you don't understand it well enough we'll tell you this and therefore mm. you believe it so i guess where i'm coming from is if there's a base how level of understanding then people look at it and go well that's just rubbish how do we get that base level of understanding? How, how do you teach people to have a bullshit meter basically, mm -hmm. to say, I can see that that's crap and I'm going to call it as such. I, I actually don't know how to um, tackle that because in a lot of ways, I mean, people will choose the newspapers that they choose and people yeah. will choose the media that they choose. And it's like in America with people watching Fox, Fox News. News. It's like if you don't want to watch a particular brand of news that might be I don't know, have some credibility, <laughs> then you don't have to. Mm. And, yeah, it's part of the world that we live in, I guess, to say something completely banal, but... So do you think that there's a role for science journalists to help try and change that per perception? I'd love to say yes, but I think... Um, so the media is um, not necessarily in the healthiest place that it's been, <laughs> with um, lots, of, lots of media companies having to cut back not not a new uh, news story but I do think it's um I do think it's a really good time to be a specialist journalist because being able to provide in-depth uh, coverage with knowledge uh, is something that media outlets can't do with their staff writers necessarily anymore they're cutting back cutting back cutting back which means that they will rely i think more and more on specialist journalists so 
I guess it's you know potentially a really um, a really good time to be a science communicator because you do have that um, in to media organisations that you might not have had mm-hmm. um, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. I know there's a lot of people who, you know, in the US they complain about Fox and, and so on and in Australia people complain about News Limited and mm-hmm. you know, the Murdoch papers. <laughs> yeah, they're all owned by the same parent company but, um, but these organisations have a lot of influence and in Australia we've got um, the conversation which has come out mm-hmm. which is articles written by you know, people with you know, at least some uh, background in the area that they're writing in. Mm. Um, do you think that that kind of model is going to become more popular? I think it will become more popular because companies like The Conversation, they're certainly bucking the trend in terms of being media organisations that are actually growing rather than shrinking. So the good thing about The Conversation is that a lot of the time it gets subjects out into the public that wouldn't necessarily be sought out by journalists. So... You know, you might have a story about, uh, I think one story that I came across was about, you know, women who give birth standing up versus lying down. You know, yeah. it's kind of a quite a niche topic, but at the same time it has very... It's a lot of interesting wide, aspects to it. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and lots, lots of people have a good, good reason to be very interested in it. But had there been a journalist working for a paper... I, I don't know that they necessarily would have come across such a topic. Mm. Um, so things like that are, are really quite, um, you know, it, it's a good thing to have uh, researchers get out there and they pitch to the editors at the conversation and um, obviously there's a bit of, you know, well, yeah, no, we're not really interested in this, that or the other thing. Mm. But it's still getting a broader... Um, a broader range of topics than you would get if you just had journalists hunting down the stories, I think. So in 10 years' time, if I was to turn around and say, you've had a happy, successful career, what would that look like for you? Look, I think um, kind of sounds like any writer's dream is to, you know, have articles in being published in better places than what they're having them published now. And I, th- I think, it, you know, I, I would love to um, to write a popular science book at some point, but uh, I'm still working out what what I could fill a book with, <laughs> what topic would be good for that. But, but yeah, I think just the process of getting out there and, and meeting so many interesting scientists who, for the most part, are extraordinarily willing to give you their time and talk about their work is um you know makes the job fun Mm. it's it's a it's a real privilege to to be able to do it dr lewis thank you for your time today no problem Thanks for listening to the show. You can check out the Brains Matter website at www.brainsmatter.com. That's www.brainsmatter.com.
A-T-T-E-R.com and you can find all the other episodes of the show there. Just click on the podcast link on the right-hand side. There's also other information on the site, such as subscription details, both via iTunes and manually. If you want to support the show, have a look at the support the show link. You can make a donation via PayPal. If you have any comments or suggestions, you can leave an entry on this episode's show notes on the webpage, or you can send me an email. All my contact information can be found on the site. The theme music Future is performed by Cut Copy and comes courtesy of Glenn Gertz from Modular Records. I hope you enjoyed the show. Bye for now. Immortalized. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Just in case I come back again, it's an answer to that question. <laughs>